This is section 20 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. Territorial Enterprise, June, July, October, 1865. Territorial Enterprise, June 27th through 30th, 1865. Just one more unfortunate. Immorality is not decreasing in San Francisco. I saw a girl in the city prison last night who looked as much out of place there as I did myself, possibly more so. She was petite and diffident, and only sixteen years and one month old. To judge by her looks, one would say she was as sinless as a child. But such was not the case. She had been living with a strapping young nigger for six months. She told her story as artlessly as a schoolgirl, and it did not occur to her for a moment that she had been doing anything unbecoming, and I never listened to a narrative which seemed more simple and straightforward, or more free from ostentation and vainglory. She told her name and her age to a day. She said she was born in Holborn, city of London, father living, but gone back to England, was not married to the negro, but she was left without anyone to take care of her and he had taken charge of that department, and had conducted it since she was fifteen and a half years old very satisfactorily. All listeners pitied her, and said feelingly, "'Poor heifer! Poor devil!' and said she was an ignorant, erring child, and had not done wrong willfully and knowingly, and they hoped she would pass her examination for the industrial school, and be removed from the temptation and the opportunity to sin. Tears! and it was a credit to their manliness and their good feeling. Tears stood in the eyes of some of those stern policemen. Oh, woman, thy name is Humbug! Afterwards, while I sat taking some notes, and not in sight from the women's cell, some of the old blisters fell to gossiping, and, lo, young Simplicity chipped in and clattered away as lively as the vilest of them. It came out in the conversation that she was Hail fellow well met with all the old female rapscallions in the city, and had had business relations with their several establishments for a long time past. She spoke affectionately of some of them, and the reverse of others, and dwelt with a toothsome relish upon numberless reminiscences of her social and commercial intercourse with them. She knew all manner of men, too, men with quaint and suggestive names for the most part, and liked Oyster-Eyed Bill, and bloody mike and the screamer but cherished a spirit of animosity toward foxy macdonald for cutting her with a bowie knife at a strumpet ball one night she a poor innocent kitten oh she was a scallywag whom it would be base flattery to call a prostitute she a candidate for the industrial school bless you she has graduated long ago she is competent to take charge of a university of vice in the ordinary branches she is equal to the best, and in the higher ones, such as ornamental swearing and fancy embroidered filigree slang, she is a shade superior to any artist I ever listened to. Territorial Enterprise, July 7th through 19th, 1865. Portion of letter from San Francisco describing black marchers in Fourth of July celebration. Mark Twain on the Colored Man and at the fag end of the procession was a long double file of the proudest, happiest scoundrels I saw yesterday, niggers, or perhaps I should say them damned niggers, which is 
the other name they go by now. They did all it was in their power to do, poor devils, to modify the prominence of the contrast between black and white faces, which seems so hateful to their white fellow-creatures, by putting their lightest-colored darkies in the front rank, then glooming down by some unaggravating and nicely graduated shades of darkness to the fell and dismal blackness of undefiled and unalloyed niggerdom in the remote extremity of the procession. It was a fine stroke of strategy. The day was dusty, and no man could tell where the white folks left off and the niggers began. The damned niggers, this is another descriptive title which has been conferred upon them by a class of our fellow-citizens who persist in the most short-sighted manner in being on bad terms with them in the face of the fact that they have got to sing with them in heaven or scorch with them in hell some day in the most familiar and sociable way and on a footing of most perfect equality the damned niggers i say smiled one broad extravagant powerful smile of grateful thankfulness and profound and perfect happiness from the beginning of the march to the end and through this vast black drifting cloud of smiles their white teeth glimmered fitfully like heat-lightning on a summer's night if a white man honored them with a smile in return they were utterly overcome and fell to bowing like oriental devotees and attempting the most extravagant and impossible smiles, reckless of lockjaw. They might as well have left their hats at home, for they never put them on. I was rather irritated at the idea of letting these fellows march in the procession myself, at first, but I would have scorned to harbor so small a thought if I had known the privilege was going to do them so much good. There seemed to be a religious benevolent society among them, with a banner, the only one in the colored ranks, I believe, and all hands seemed to take boundless pride in it. The banner had a picture on it, but I could not exactly get the hang of its significance. It presented a very black and uncommonly sick-looking nigger in bed, attended by two other niggers, one reading the Bible to him, and the other one handing him a plate of oysters. But what the very mischief this blending of contraband dissolution raw oysters and Christian consolation could possibly be symbolic of was more than I could make out. Territorial Enterprise, October 10th through 11th, 1865. Portion of letter from San Francisco. The Cruel Earthquake. Singular Effects of the Shock on the Reverend Mr. Stebbins. Now, the Reverend Mr. Stebbins acted like a sensible man, a man with his presence of mind about him. He did precisely what I thought of doing myself at the time of the earthquake, but had no opportunity. He came down out of his pulpit and embraced a woman. Some say it was his wife. Well, and so it might have been his wife. I'm not saying it wasn't, am I? I am not going to intimate anything of that kind, because how do I know but it was his wife? I say it might have been his wife, and so it might. I was not there and I do not consider that I have any right to say it was not his wife. In reality, I am satisfied it was his wife. But I am sorry, though, because it would have been so much better presence of mind to have embraced some other woman. I was in Third Street. 
I looked around for some woman to embrace, but there was none in sight. I could have expected no better fortune, though, so I said, Oh, certainly, just my luck. A SINGULAR ILLUSTRATION When the earthquake arrived in Oakland, the commanding officer of the Congregational Sabbath School was reading these words, by way of text, And the earth shook and trembled. In an instant the earthquake seized the text and preached a powerful sermon on it. I do not know whether the commanding officer resumed the subject again when the earthquake left off or not, but if he did I am satisfied that he has got a good deal of cheek. I do not consider that any modest man would try to improve on a topic that had already been treated by an earthquake. A model artist strikes an attitude. A young gentleman who lives in Sacramento Street rushed downstairs and appeared in public with no raiment on save a knit undershirt, which concealed his person about as much as its tin-foil cap conceals a champagne bottle. He struck an attitude such as a man assumes when he is looking up, expecting danger from above, and bends his arm and holds it aloft to ward off possible missiles and standing thus he glared fiercely up at the firewall of a tall building opposite, from which a few bricks had fallen. Men shouted at him to go in the house. People seized him by the arm and tried to drag him away, even tender-hearted women. Oh, woman! Oh, ever-noble, unselfish, angelic woman! Oh, woman, in our hours of ease uncertain, coy and hard to please! When anything happens to go wrong with our harness, a ministering angel thou. Women, I say, averting their faces, and nudging the paralyzed and impassable statue in the ribs with their elbows, beseeched him to take their aprons, to take their shawls, to take their hoop-skirts, anything, anything, so that he would not stand there longer in such a plight and distract people's attention from the earthquake. But he wouldn't budge. He stood there in his naked majesty till the last tremor died away from the earth, and then looked around on the multitude, and stupidly enough, too, until his dull eye fell upon himself. He went back upstairs then. He went up lively. What happened to a few Virginians? Charlie Bryan climbs a telegraph pole. But where is the use in dwelling on these incidents? There are enough of them to make a book. Joe Noakes, of your city, was playing billiards in the Cosmopolitan Hotel. He went through a window into the court, and then jumped over an iron gate eighteen feet high, and took his billiard cue with him. Sam Wittgenstein took refuge in a church, probably the first time he was ever in one in his life. Judge Bryan climbed a telegraph pole. Pete Hopkins narrowly escaped injury. He was shaken abruptly from the summit of the telegraph hill and fell on a three-story brick house ten feet below. I see that the morning papers, always ready to smooth over things, attribute the destruction of the house to the earthquake. That is newspaper magnanimity. But an earthquake has no friends. Extraordinary things happened to everybody except me. No one even spoke to me. At least, only one man did, I believe, a man named Robinson, from Salt Lake, I think, who asked me to take a drink. I refused. Territorial Enterprise, October 21st through 24th, 1865. Portion of letter from San Francisco, written October 19th, 1865. 
Bob Roach's Plan for Circumventing a Democrat. Where did all these Democrats come from? They grow thicker and thicker and act more and more outrageously at each successive election. Now, yesterday they had the presumption to elect S. H. Dwinell to the judgeship of the 15th District Court, and, not content with this, they were depraved enough to elect four out of the six justices of the peace. O oh, Henry Villiam, where is thy blush? O oh, Timothy Hooligan, where is thy shame? It's out. Democrats haven't got any. But Union men stayed away from the election. They either did that, or else they came to the election and voted Democratic tickets. I think it was the latter, though the flag will doubtless say it was the former. But these Democrats didn't stay away. You never catch a Democrat staying away from an election. The grand end and aim of his life is to vote or be voted for, and he accommodates to circumstances and does one just as cheerfully as he does the other. The democracy of America left their native wilds in England and Connaught to come here and vote, and when a man, and especially a foreigner, who don't have any voting at home any more than an Arkansas man has ice cream for dinner, comes three or four thousand miles to luxuriate in occasional voting, he isn't going to stay away from an election any more than the Arkansas man will leave the hotel table in Orleans until he has destroyed most of the ice cream. The only man I ever knew who could counteract this passion on the part of Democrats for voting was Robert Roach, carpenter of the steamer Alex Scott, plying to and from St. Louis to New Orleans and back, as her advertisement sometimes read. The Democrats generally came up as deck passengers from New Orleans, and the yellow fever used to snatch them right and left, eight or nine a day for the first six or eight hundred miles. Consequently, Roach would have a lot on hand to plant every time the boat landed to wood. Plant was Roach's word. One day, as Roach was superintending a burial, the captain came up and said, "'God bless my soul, Roach!' What do you mean by shoving a corpse into a hole in the hillside in this barbarous way, face down and its feet sticking out? I always plant foreign Democrats in that manner, sir, because, damn their souls, if you plant them any other way, they'll dig out and vote the first time there's an election. But look at that fellow now. You put him in head first and face down, and the more they dig, the deeper they'll go into the hill. In my opinion, if we do not get Roach to superintend our cemeteries, Enough Democrats will dig out at the next election to carry their entire ticket. It begins to look that way. Territorial Enterprise, October 26 through 28, 1865. San Francisco Letter. Written October 24, 1865. Some portions missing. A love of a bonnet described. Well, you ought to see the new style of bonnets, and then die. You see— Everybody has discarded ringlets and bunches of curls, and taken to the clod of compact hair on the afterguard, which they call a waterfall, though why they name it so I cannot make out, for it looks no more like one's general notion of a waterfall than a cabbage looks like a cataract. Yes, they have thrown aside the bunches of curls which necessitated the wearing of a bonnet with a back door to it, or rather, a bonnet without any back to it at all, so that the curls bulged out from under an overhanging spray of slender feathers, 
sprigs of grass, etc. You know the kind of bonnet I mean. It was as if a lady spread a diaper on her head, with two of the corners brought down over her ears, and the other trimmed with a bunch of graceful flummery, and allowed to hang over her waterfall. Fashions are mighty tanglesome things to write. But I am coming to it directly. The diaper was the only beautiful bonnet women have worn within my recollection, but as they have taken exclusively to the waterfalls now, they have thrown it aside and adopted <laughs> me the infernalest old-fashionedest ruralist atrocity in its stead you ever saw. It is perfectly plain and hasn't a ribbon or a flower or any ornament whatever about it. It is severely shaped like the half of a lady's thimble split in two lengthwise, or would be if that thimble had a perfectly square end instead of a rounded one. Just imagine it, glance at it in your mind's eye, and recollect no ribbons, no flowers, no filigree, only the plainest kind of plain straw or plain black stuff. It don't come forward as far as the hair, and it fits to the head as tightly as a thimble fits, folded in a square mass against the back of the head, and the square end of the bonnet half covers it and fits as square and tightly against it as if somebody had hit the woman in the back of the head with a tombstone or some other heavy and excessively flat projectile, and a woman looks as distressed in it as a cat with her head fast in a teacup. It is infamous. Reopening of the Plaza The Plaza, or Portsmouth Square, is done, at last, and, by a resolution passed by the Board of Supervisors last night, is to be thrown open to the public henceforth at seven o'clock a.m., and closed again at seven o'clock p.m. every day. The same resolution prohibits the visits of dogs to this holy ground, and denies to the public the privilege of rolling on its grass. If I could bring myself to speak vulgarly, I should say that the latter clause is rough, very rough on the people. To be forced to idle in gravel walks when there is soft green grass close at hand is tantalizing. It is as uncomfortable as to lie disabled and thirsty in sight of a fountain, or to look at a feast without permission to participate in it when you are hungry, and almost as exasperating as to have to smack your chops over the hugging and kissing going on between a couple of sweethearts without any reasonable excuse for inserting your own metaphorical shovel. And yet there is one consolation about it on nature's eternal equity of compensation. No matter how degraded and worthless you may become here, you cannot go to grass in the plaza, at any rate. The plaza is a different thing from what it used to be. It used to be a text from a desert. It was not large enough for a whole chapter but now it is traversed here and there by walks of precise width, and which are graded to a degree of rigid accuracy which is constantly suggestive of the spirit level, and the grass plots are as strictly shaped as a dandy's side-whiskers, and their surfaces clipped and smoothed with the same mathematical exactness. In a word, the plaza looks like the intensely brown and green perspectiveless diagram of stripes and patches which an architect furnishes to his client as a plan for a projected city garden or cemetery. And its glaring greenness, in the midst of so much somberness, is startling, and yet piercingly pleasant to the eye. 
It reminds one of old John Deal's vegetable garden in Virginia, which, after a rain, used to burn like a square of green fire in the midst of the dull gray desolation around it. More Fashions Exit Waterfall I am told that the Empress Eugenie is growing bald on the top of her head, and that to hide this defect she now combs her back hair forward in such a way as to make her look all right. I am also told that this mode of dressing the hair is already fashionable in all the great civilized cities of the world, and that it will shortly be adopted here. Therefore, let your ladies stand by and prepare to drum their ringlets to the front when I give the word. I shall keep a weather eye out for this fashion, for I am an uncompromising enemy of the popular waterfall, and I yearn to see it in disgrace. Just think of the disgusting shape and appearance of the thing. The hair is drawn to a slender neck at the back, and then commences a great fat oblong ball, like a kidney covered with a net, and sometimes this net is so thickly bespangled with white beads that the ball looks soft and fuzzy and filmy and gray at a little distance, so that it vividly reminds you of those nauseating garden spiders in the States that go about dragging a pulpy, grayish bag full of young spiders slung to them behind. And when I look at these suggestive waterfalls, and remember how seasick it used to make me to mash one of those spider-bags, I feel seasick again, as a general thing. Its shape alone is enough to turn one's stomach. Let's have the back hair brought forward as soon as convenient. Note bene, I shall feel much obliged to you if you can aid me in getting up this panic. I have no wife of my own, and therefore as long as I have to make the most of other people's, it is a matter of vital importance to me that they should dress with some degree of taste. Territorial Enterprise, October 15th through 31st, 1865. Portion of letter from San Francisco. Popper defieth ye earthquake. Where's Ajax now, with his boasted defiance of the lightning? Who is Ajax to Popper, and what is lightning to an earthquake? It is taking no chances, to speak of, to defy the lightning, for it might pelt away at you for a year and miss you every time. But I don't care what corner you hide in, if the earthquake comes, it will shake you, and if you will build your house weak enough to give it a fair show, it will melt it down like butter. Therefore, I exalt Popper above Ajax, for Popper defieth the earthquake. The famous shake of the 8th of October snatched the front out of Popper's great four-story shell of a house on the corner of Third and Mission as easily if it had been mere pastime. Yet I notice that the reckless Popper is rebuilding it again, just as thin as it was before, and using the same old bricks. Is this paying proper respect to earthquakes? I think not. If I were an earthquake, I would never stand for such insolence from Popper. I am confident that I would shake that shell down, even if it took my last shake. Territorial Enterprise, October 31st through November 2nd, 1865. Portion of San Francisco Letter Steamer Departures I feel savage this morning, and, as usual, when one wants to growl, it is almost impossible to find things to growl about with any degree of satisfaction. 
I cannot find anything in the steamer departures to get mad at. Only, I wonder who J. Schmelzer is, and what does he have such a, an atrocious name for, and what business has he got in the States? Who is there in the States who cares whether Schmelzer comes or not? The conduct of this unknown Schmelzer is exasperating to the last degree. And off goes General Rosecrans, without ever doing anything to give a paper a chance to abuse him. He has behaved himself and kept quiet, and avoided scandalous meddling with the Oakland seminaries, and paid his board in the most aggravating manner. Let him go. And Kness is gone. Oh, damn Kness. End of section 20